0: The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O Lord, teach thy people to love thy house best of all dwellings, thy scriptures best of all books, thy sacraments best of all gifts, the communion of saints best of all company, and that we may as one family and in one place give thanks and adore thy glory. Help us to keep always thy day, the first of days, holy unto thee, our Maker, our resurrection, and our life. God blessed forever. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome back. Happy New Year to you all. It's good to see you. It seems like it's been a long time since we've had this Rector's Forum. Uh, Lots of activity in the life of the congregation, but we've been on recess for some time as a consequence of the holidays, so it's really good to be back. Um, We are continuing our study of John's Gospel, so if you have your Bibles, be so kind as to open them up to John chapter five. And we are going to continue our look at another of Jesus' miracles, signs as the Gospel of John often refers to them. We took an initial look at this, the healing of the the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath day. Somebody asked me as the class was beginning, um, is this the same as the pool of Siloam? Um, there's been a, a great deal in the news recently about excavations and archaeology that that's been taking place in the city of Jerusalem and the discovery of this particular pool, the pool of Siloam. Uh, this is not the same pool. Um, there were a number of these pools in and around Jerusalem in the first century. They were called mikvahs. And basically what they were were places for ceremonial cleansing. The Jews had many things. So it is true, Jesus uh, healed a man who was blind and gave him instructions to go and um, wash in the pool of Siloam uh, for ritual cleansing, ceremonial cleansing. The pool where this particular miracle in John chapter 5 takes place is the pool of Bethesda. Um, It has been known for some time. Uh, It was discovered in the early part of the 20th century. Um, As I said, when we first looked at this, uh, it was significant in terms of Uh, testifying to the trustworthiness of John's gospel. Because this was a pool that was described as having five covered colonnades. And nobody knew of a pool in the first century that had five covered colonnades because it made it sound like it was anything but a rectangle. And as it turns out, this pool was discovered, and you can go there today. In fact, those of you who are going with me in the spring, God willing, to the Holy Land will have an opportunity to visit this pool. It's right there in Jerusalem, right outside the old city walls, uh, near St. Anne's Church. And you'll have an opportunity to go there, and we will read this passage, and we will have a healing service on that site. But both pools have now been discovered. They are mentioned in the gospels and again, it's a testimony to the trustworthiness of the biblical writers and their accuracy in recording historical events. But two different pools. Well, at any rate, we're going to return here to John chapter five. Again, we're going to look specifically at verses nine through 16. So if you will turn there and I will go ahead and read through this passage. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in that place. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now just to refresh your memory a little bit about this story. Uh, We said this took place, as I said, on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Uh, It took place, of course, on the Sabbath. And it was one of the occasions in which Jesus begins to run afoul of the Jewish religious leaders. Now, the way John describes it here is interesting. He says that the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. And I pointed out that in the Gospel of John, whenever you hear that phrase, the Jews, it's not necessarily a reference to the nation as a whole or to the people ethnically. John's Gospel, it is almost exclusively used as a reference to the Jewish religious leaders. Now, sometimes people have claimed that the Gospel of John is anti-Semitic. Well, That's not necessarily the case at all. Obviously, the early disciples were all Jews. Obviously, Jesus himself was a Jew. But the way that John uses that expression, that term, and you see this consistently throughout the fourth Gospel, is to describe the Jewish religious leaders, in particular, the scribes and the Pharisees. So when it says that the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. This is very evident, particularly at this early stage in the gospel, that John is not talking about the Jewish people. As a matter of fact, the Jewish people are ecstatic about Jesus. I mean, they're following him in droves at this point, large numbers of people. No, it's the Jewish religious leaders that Jesus is having trouble with. Now, it's very easy to paint them in a negative light, Um, We all know that the Pharisees and the scribes and the lawyers, those were the ones who were often out there to bring Jesus down. And uh, we always look at them as the villains in the stories. But it's important to understand some of the historical background, particularly when it comes to this whole issue of the Sabbath. Uh, We need to understand what was going on in the minds of these religious leaders. Uh, First of all, you need to understand that the Jews had been an oppressed people for a very long time. Um, And the situation, uh, the tension that existed between them, a conquered people and their conquerors, had been reaching a boiling point. It had been simmering for some time, but it had been reaching a boiling point. Uh, As a matter of fact, Uh, Within 35 years or so following the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you all know the city of Jerusalem is going to be sacked and destroyed by the Romans. Uh, The emperor is going to send in the general Titus. He's going to come in. He's going to sack the city of Jerusalem. Over 100,000 people are going to be put to the sword. Now, part of the reason for this is because this was a seedbed of discontent. Palestine in the first century. The the Jews hated the idea that the Romans were in control. Now you're going to hear from Justin today in his sermon uh, about the Magi, and you're going to hear about King Herod, and you're going to hear about how Herod had a tendency to be religious, and how Herod built a temple, the great temple in Jerusalem, and Herod did all of those things. Uh, But you're also going to hear that Herod was the consummate politician. He built a great temple for the Jews, but he also made sure that he was complying with all of the demands of the Romans, and he had emblazoned over the entrance to that temple, God's temple, mind you, an imperial eagle, which meant that every time the Jews went into the temple complex, they were reminded of the fact that they were not a free nation. They were an oppressed people, and they hated that. Uh, They regarded the Romans as Gentile dogs. They regarded the Romans as pagan polytheistic oppressors. And so for the hundred years leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem, there was, on average, a messianic uprising every single year, on average. Now, if you're the Roman governor of Palestine and your responsibility is to maintain the peace, this was the age of the famed Pax Romana, after all. And so if it's your job to keep the peace and the people that you're governing are constantly out there causing trouble causing discontent, trying to wage uprisings against what is regarded as the lawful authority, what do you think the situation is going to be? For the Jews, it was not only that they were oppressed, but by this point, John the Baptist had been arrested. And many people, you recall, thought that John the Baptist was the Messiah. The Jews all believed that a Davidic Messiah was going to come. But their expectations in the first century was that when he came, he was going to be a political or military messiah. His whole goal was to drive out the oppressive Romans. Now, as we know, Jesus didn't come to do that because the real oppressor is not some sort of physical power. It's a spiritual power. And that's what Jesus came to liberate us from. But at this point, most people assume that the real oppressor was the Roman Empire. And when the Messiah came, he was going to drive them out. Well, here's John the Baptist down there in the Judean wilderness. He's preaching. He's cutting people to the quick. Everybody from Jerusalem, we're told, and the surrounding regions were going down to be with John the Baptist. He looked like an Old Testament prophet, after all. An official delegation was sent out by the Sanhedrin to inquire as to whether or not he was the Messiah. He was a wildly popular individual. But by this point, he's been arrested by Herod, And he's been thrown into prison. And ultimately, he's going to be executed. So the Jews are oppressed. One of their leading figures has now been arrested. And there is this increase in zealot activity. So this is the situation here. It is a very dangerous situation and that's why the jewish religious leaders jewish religious leaders were trying to define themselves in opposition to the romans and what we're going to see is that jesus runs afoul of them in this very very volatile climate and why does he do that well he does it primarily because of this healing that takes place on the sabbath Look at this, chapter five, verse one. After this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, let me just say something about geography here. It says he went up to Jerusalem. That does not mean that Jesus approached from the south. Actually, Jesus was coming from Galilee, which is in the north. But when Jews speak of Jerusalem, you always go up to Jerusalem. Not only because Jerusalem is situated on a high point, the highest point around, but because it was the highest point, spiritually speaking, in the world for Jews. It was the most important place. So it didn't matter whether you were coming from the south, the east, the west, the north. It made no difference whatsoever. You always went up to Jerusalem as a Jew. So we're told that he went to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of the invalids, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. One man was there who'd been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been there for a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, while I'm going others step down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. So far, so good. But it's the next verse, the one we started with just a moment ago that is so critical. Now that day was the Sabbath. The fact that Jesus healed was not a problem. Even the Jewish religious leaders would have regarded that as a mercy. The problem was that he healed them on this particular day. He healed them on the Sabbath. Now, I love the way the story is told because Jesus sort of slips away into the crowd Jesus is not a grandstander. He's not interested in saying, oh, look at what I've done. Uh, He sort of just slips away. He's acted in mercy. He's healed this man, but there's a large crowd there. It was the Sabbath. This was very close to the temple precincts, very near to the temple gate called Beautiful. And so this place was just, you know, swarming with people. And Jesus slips away. But... The scribes and the Pharisees see this man carrying his mat, carrying a burden on the Sabbath, which in their interpretation was a violation of the law. And so they really come up to get him. And they said, why are you carrying your mat? This is the Sabbath. You know you're not supposed to be doing that. And he said, well, the man who healed me told me to do it. And they said, who's the man? Well, he didn't even know who it was. But eventually, he encounters Jesus later on. He's probably nervous himself that he's going to get into trouble with the authorities. He's already been in trouble his whole life. I mean, he's 38 years, been an invalid. The last thing he wants is anything else to go wrong. And so he goes back to them, and he tells them that it is Jesus. And that's when everything turns. In fact, it's going to turn to such a degree that by the time we get to the end, it starts in a very solemn way. Now, that day was the Sabbath, and the text ends in a very solemn way. And so from that time on, they were seeking all the more to kill him. You have to ask the question, why were the Jewish religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, etc., so fanatical about this issue of the Sabbath? I mean, Yes, it's important to keep the law, but they were fanatical about the Sabbath, to such a degree that they were willing to persecute people, in the case of Jesus, even unto death. What is it about the Sabbath for the Jewish religious leaders? Well, again, some historical background here might help us to be a little more sympathetic to them. I'm not saying that they were right by any means. We're going to see that they weren't. But they started off with good intentions. And oftentimes that's the way it is. People start off with good intentions. What's the old expression? The road to hell is paved with what? Good intentions. Well, they started off with good intentions. They were serious about the Sabbath and about people violating the Sabbath, first and foremost, because after all, it was a commandment. It was the fourth commandment. Keep holy the Sabbath day. And God had declared that to be a day of rest. And so for Jews... It was keeping the commandment. So the Sabbath was important. The other thing was, as I said already, they were a marginalized and an oppressed people. They had been for centuries. As Americans, we have a hard time understanding this because, quite frankly, anybody that's been born in America and raised in America has never really experienced true oppression, not on a national scale. We just haven't. And as a matter of fact, we pride ourselves on the fact that as a nation, we have never been conquered. I mean, the British came in and burned Washington, D.C. The, during the War of 1812. You might want to invite them to come back and do it again sometime. I don't know. But, <clears throat> but nevertheless, they weren't victorious. We've never been a conquered nation. But those who have been conquered nations know what oppression looks like. I often, when I think of the Jews in the first century, think of people who were born and grew up during the time of the Soviet Union. They lived in an oppressed culture, and that's what the Jews were. Now, the Jews liked to think that they were free, and they would declare themselves free, but Jesus pointed out to them that that was not the case at all. On one occasion, they got into a dispute, the scribes and the Pharisees, with Jesus. And he talked about the the children of Abraham. And they said, well, wait a minute. We're the children of Abraham. And Jesus was indicating that they were under bondage to sin. And they said, we've never been slaves to anybody. Well, that was just hogwash. They've been slaves almost their whole history. They've been slaves for over 400 years in Egypt, making bricks without straw portion of the nation had been carried off into Babylonia, where they had been slaves. A portion of the nation had been carried off into Assyria, where they had been slaves. And right now, for all intents and purposes, in the first century, living under the Roman regime, they were slaves. Nobody, nobody questioned Caesar. Nobody. This was no democracy in the first century. Caesar was an absolute ruler. He was a demigod. And the Jews had to pay taxes to Caesar. You'll recall that was a big issue for Jews. They came up to Jesus, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? Everybody did. Well, when you live in an oppressed culture, what do you do? How do you survive? How do you hold on? How do you maintain traditions? One of two things will happen to an oppressed people. If you're living in an oppressed culture, one of two things is going to happen to you. You're gonna, first of all, be under tremendous pressure to conform. To conform to the pattern of the society around you. The Roman Empire was not going to tolerate anybody doing their own thing. No, you are going to be in lockstep with the Empire. Look, that's the Soviet Union, isn't it? Most of us, as I look out over this crowd, remember the Soviet Union. And what it was like for people during the Cold War. Could you be an individual in in, in Russia? Or in the Soviet Union, the USSR? Nobody could be an individual. You weren't allowed to be an individual. Everybody had to be a part of the whole. Think alike, act alike. Well, you're either going to, when you're under that kind of pressure and that kind of threat, you're either going to conform or you're capitulate Or what you do is you become more and more resistant. You're determined not to conform. You're going to be different. I think this is one of the things that is very unique about the Eastern Church, incidentally. For those of you, you know, in the West, we're familiar with the Western Church. You know, there is a whole other branch of the Christian Church, the Eastern Church, what we call the Orthodox Church, the Eastern Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox, the Ukrainian Orthodox, the Greek Orthodox, and so forth. Well, one of the things that you will notice if you go over to that part of the world, and I have been there many times, and those of you going to the Holy Land, you'll get a little taste of this. You'll notice that they worship in a very different way than we do. Lots and lots of tradition, and it's a layering and a layering and a layering of tradition and and ornamentation and all of that. Well, why is that? It is because they had been for centuries an oppressed people, and the church was forced to go underground. And this is how they defined themselves over and against the culture. It was their only way to do that. They didn't have the ability to stand up and deliver a speech, and if necessary, a sermon, be critical of the powers that be. You dare not do that. And so they sort of layered on more and more liturgy, and their worship was an attempt to define themselves in a way... It was different from the culture around them. That's what's going to happen to somebody when you're in an oppressed culture. You're either going to conform and capitulate and become just like the world, or you're going to try as best you can to define yourself over and against that culture. Well, I want you to understand many of the Jews by the first century had conformed. They had capitulated. It was the old Popeye syndrome. Well, if you can beat them, join them. And many of them had. They had become just like the Gentiles, the Greeks all around them. They did not want to have to endure that kind of persecution and suffering, and so they just gave in. But there was one group that refused to give in. They said, no. Enough is enough. And they drew a line in the sand, and they said, we will not go any further than this. We are God's people. We are called to come out from among them and be separate and be different, and by golly, we shall do it. Even, even if it means we have to die as a consequence. They were courageous. And who were they? They were the Pharisees. They were the Pharisees and the scribes. They maintained that there were certain fixed points in their lives on which no matter what anybody tried to force them to do, they would never, ever compromise. This far and no further. What were those fixed points? Well, one of the fixed points would have been the kosher food laws. They were not going to eat anything that was unclean. Now the Romans ate all sorts of things. The Greeks ate all sorts of things. The Jews had been told that no, they were not supposed to eat certain things. There were certain animals that God regarded, at least for them, as clean and unclean. Well, many of the people sort of just gave in on that. You know, little pork here, little pork there. What what difference does it make? But the Pharisees said no. And they were very strict about the kosher laws. Now, they understood that what this did was mark them out. It marked them out as different. It was intended originally to give them an opportunity to witness. People would come up and say, why do you do this? Why why are you different from everybody else? Why are you strange? And that was supposed to give them an opportunity to bear witness to the fact that they believed in the one God and who that God was, the creator, the sustainer of all things. So they were strict about the kosher laws. They never compromised on the issue of tithing, the giving of the 10%, the first fruits unto the Lord. They were uncompromising on that. Whatever they got before taxes, they gave it to the Lord. And they were uncompromising on that. And perhaps most importantly, they never compromised on the observance of the Sabbath. That was a day that was to be holy unto the Lord. It was to be a day of rest. And they had drawn that line in the sand and they would not go over it. I think in this regard, they're a noble example for us. Because whether you realize it or not, we are living, and Justin says this in his sermon, in a culture that is remarkably akin to the environment in the first century. We are living, please disabuse yourself of the idea that America is a Christian nation. First of all, we've never been a Christian nation. We were once, at one point perhaps, a nation where the majority of its citizens were Christians, but we never had a state religion. You understand that the founding fathers were very clear there would be a separation of the church and the state. There would be no establishment of religion. And now, as we are, uh, approaching the mid-part of the 20th century, let me tell you something. We are a secular culture. The largest generation in this nation's history, and that's what the current generation is, the largest, nation in this, largest generation in this nation's history, do you realize that the vast majority of them have been raised with no religious affiliation at all? See, that's hard for us to believe, because as I look out over this crowd today, with a few possible exceptions, most of us have been raised in a Christian environment, at least in a culture that still adheres to Christian or Judeo-Christian morality. But most young people today, nothing. Uh, You know that they're sometimes referred to as the nuns. The nuns. That's not n-u-n like Roman Catholic nuns, they're called nuns because when they fill out forms and it says religious affiliation, they put none. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not spiritual. That doesn't mean that they're not interested in things transcendent. That does not mean that they're not seeking. But what it does mean is that they have no formal religious training or upbringing whatsoever. Their parents may have gone to church, but their parents never took them to church. I have a cousin who is in his 40s. And here I am, a priest. And he's, I don't think he's ever been in a church a day in his life except for a wedding or for a funeral. Never. And he's not the exception anymore. He's the rule among you, most young people. And what we find is that more and more, even in the church, even among those who are so-called religious, we're under such pressure from the culture to accept the culture's standards and morals and values that we find ourselves, if we stand over and against that, labeled all sorts of nasty things. Homophobic, for example. And the result is that when you're under that kind of pressure and you're being labeled and you're facing that kind of pressure, you do one of two things, don't you? You either give in, you compromise, you conform to the pattern of the world around you, or you define yourself over and against that. Now that is a painful, risky, and costly thing to do to define yourself over and against. I don't want to bring this up. This will be the last time, perhaps forever, that I'll bring this up. But it's one of the reasons why we fought that very costly lawsuit. Is because we were a part of a denomination that looked very much, quite frankly, like the world. It didn't look any different from the world. And we knew that we were called to be salt and light in the culture. You know, Jesus tells this wonderful story, perhaps, oh, well, you can see it down there on the bottom of your screen. It's about being salt and light in the world. It's in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. Jesus is speaking. It's, it's part of the Sermon on the Mount. He's speaking to his disciples, and he describes the believers as two things. He said, you are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. Now, those are two powerful images, particularly in a first-century context. Why was salt so important? It's because salt did three things in the first-century context. First of all, salt was primarily used as a preservative. We use it as a condiment today to flavor food, and it does do that. But in the first century, its primary purpose was preservative. It didn't have refrigeration in those days. This is the Middle East. This is hard to find blocks of ice. Salt was used to keep things from decaying, from putrefaction. You've heard of salted meat, salted pork, salted ham. If you're from Virginia, you have cured ham. This is what they did. And Jesus said, that's what you are. He's saying the world around you, and and, and don't take offense at this, this is not me saying it. If you're mad, tell Jesus about it, because he's the one that said it. He said, you're living in a world which is in the process of decaying. Second law of thermodynamics, everything is moving toward entropy. It's all dying, and the world is dying. It's dying spiritually, it's dying morally, and it's going to die physically. It's going to end in a bad way. And he said, but you're salt. In that dark, pagan, unbelieving culture where people are lost, they're desperately seeking for something, but they don't even know what they're looking for. He said, you're salt. Your job is to stem the tide of decay, to preserve the culture and the world and the truth. He says, you're the light of the world. It's interesting, he describes himself as the light of the world, but he says, you're the light of the world. Now, we're not the light in the same way that he's the light. He's like the sun, we're more like the moon. We reflect his light, but the reality is, when it's a full moon and it's dark outside, you could see a great deal by the light of the moon. You're the light of the world, he says. It's hard for us again to imagine in an age of electrification how dark the world was before the advent of the light bulb. I mean, the sun went down, the world became a very dark place. People didn't stay up. They didn't turn on a light here or a light there. They went to bed. Because you couldn't see anything. The only way you could see was if somebody lit a candle. Or an oil lamp. And Jesus said, that's the world in which you live. It is a world that is dark, it is a world that is decaying, and if we're honest with ourselves, we have to admit that that is the world of today. Now, that's not to say that there aren't some bright lights out there, that's not to say that there, haven't been, there hasn't been progress in some areas, certainly we can all be thankful for the advances that have been made in terms of medical science, but in terms of morality, look at our culture. How many votes to elect the Speaker of the House of Representatives. I mean, just take a look at what we pride ourselves on, what we're paying attention to. Prince Harry. And all that he's saying about his family and and, and the destruction. We just live in this world that thrives on that sort of thing. It is a divided culture. It is a broken culture. It is a hurting culture. It is a dying, decaying world. And Jesus says, you're the salt. It's a dark world in which people haven't been raised to know God, but they're desperately searching for him. As the old country western song says, they're looking for love in all the wrong places. And you are the light, he says. But then he goes on to ask this question. He said, but what happens if the salt loses its saltiness? What happens if you light a candle and then you put a bucket over top of it? What difference does it make? What is it good for at that point? Salt in the first century, as they understood it, was made of sodium chloride, which is a pretty stable substance as I understand it. But it was collected near the Dead Sea. That was the lowest point on Earth. And it, if you've been to the Dead Sea, uh, you know you can go out and you can... You don't even swim in the Dead Sea. You just go out and float. You can't sink in the Dead Sea because of the tremendous salt content. Uh, it, it's an experience. It, if you go to the Holy Land, you need to do it once. Just once. I mean, <laughs> it's really nasty. You never have to do it again. I've been, I don't know how many times, people said, aren't you getting in? No, I'll stand on the shore and bless you, my children. Uh, <laughs> no desire to get down there in the water with you. Um but they would collect this. It was a powdery white substance that would appear along the shoreline of the Dead Sea and it was used as a preservative rubbed into meat and so forth. But there was a rainy season in that part of the world and it only comes for a brief period of time but they would get torrential rains and what would happen is the rain would come down and wash into the Dead Sea and it would wash out all of the salt but leave behind still this powdery looking substance which looked like salt But it lost its saltiness. And so Jesus asked the question, what was it good for? Well, in that day, what they did is they used it to pave the streets. They threw it out onto the streets. So Jesus asked the question, if the salt loses its saltiness, what good is it? It can't preserve anything. It can't flavor any food. You know, salt can also be used for healing properties. If you ever get a cut on your leg and go in the ocean and swim around and you come out and it facilitates healing. But if it loses its saltiness, what's it good for? Nothing. And what good is a can or a lamp if you light it and you put a bucket over it? Is it going to give any light to anybody? No. It's worthless. Well, that is exactly how the scribes and the Pharisees looked at it. If we, as the people of God, lose our uniqueness... What good are we? We're nothing to the world. So I say they really do, in some respects, set us a noble example. I ask us the same question. If we begin to look and act like the world, if we're no different from the world, what good are we to the world? Ask yourself that question. If nobody can tell that you're a Christian by the way you live, by the way you talk, by the way you act... What difference does it make? Now, I'm not pointing at you, I have to point at myself as well. Yesterday, I got my car towed downtown. <laughs> uh, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna gripe for just a second if you don't mind. So it was one of those parking lots where you pull in, it was down on King Street. I was taking my boys to lunch. I pulled in and it had one of those things where you use the app and you sign up on the app and I signed up on the app and it said, put in your license plate number and your credit card. Well, put in the credit card number, put in the license plate number, and I put SC and then the number. I went in, came out 20 minutes later, and the car was gone. And I called up the towing company, and they said, yes, we have your car. I said, where are you? It's on its way to North Charleston, which is always a fun place to go, and so I'm thinking to myself, oh, great. And I said, well, I have the information right here. I have a screenshot. I always take a screenshot. I have a screenshot of what I did. And they said, well, here's the problem. You put SC in front of your license plate. Well, I said, well, the car next to me was Georgia, and the car on the other side was Florida. I assumed SC. It's not our problem. So I went up to get the car. I had to walk home. Then I had to go up to the car, pay $211 in cash (laughs) to get the car back. If anybody wants to take on a hard-luck case as lawyers, I'm just letting you know, here I am. But I get up there, and I ask for the manager, and they said, well, here's the owner. And I told the owner, and he said, pull it up on the screen. They pulled it up on the screen, and he said, well, what you did is you put SC. And I said, well, yeah, that's how it reads on the registration. He said, what is on your license tag? And I said, well, it's South Carolina. He said, no, 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 what are the numbers? And I said, well, it's a South Carolina license plate. He said, look, here's the deal. He said, you're gonna pay your $211, you're gonna take your car and you're gonna leave and if you don't like it, I'll see you in court. And I was not Christian. (laughs) I confess to you, I was neither salt nor light at that particular moment. The salt lost its saltiness and the light was under a bushel. So I am not accusing you, I'm as guilty as anybody, but it is a valid question for us to ask. If we are like everybody else, what difference are we going to make in the world? Well, the scribes and the Pharisees were determined not to lose their saltiness. So let's have a little bit of sympathy Their motives were good. But you know how it is. When you're in an oppressive culture, it's very easy to lose sight of the positive part of the witness and to get into a siege mentality. Oh, the evil, wicked world out there, and here we are, poor put upon us. And that is exactly what began to happen to the scribes and the Pharisees. Instead of seeing the Sabbath and the law as a blessing which marked them out as a people distinct from the world and gave them the opportunity to witness, they got into a siege mentality and they began to split hairs about the law. And what was intended to be a blessing eventually became a burden. You know, they had all kinds of rules and regulations. It wasn't just keeping the Sabbath. We'll tell you exactly how you have to keep the Sabbath. And they had all kinds of other laws and rules and man-made regulations that they layered on top of God's law. And the thing became this onerous burden that people had to carry. And nobody, they gave lip service to the idea that it was good, but nobody felt like it was good. Everybody felt that it was a burden, and everybody, including the scribes and the Pharisees, were finding or looking for ways to get around it. And their hearts became hardened. Their hearts became hardened. That's something we have to watch out for in the world when we feel that we're oppressed, when we feel that we're under pressure from the culture, pressure to conform, and we know we can't. We know we're called to be salt and light, but you know you can become very bitter. I was very eager to get to communion today and say the confession of prayer after yesterday because it's very easy to become bitter in your heart when there's injustice, when there's oppression, And that, unfortunately, is what had happened to these men. Keep your finger there in John for just a minute and turn to Mark chapter 3. And let me show you how this happened. Great example of it, really. Same situation. Mark chapter 3 tells another story of another healing that took place on the Sabbath. And again, he, that is Jesus, entered a synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Here they were in church as a man with a withered hand it's not a case where they have compassion for the man. All they want to know is they're watching. They are watching to see what he's going to do. Now, Jesus knew this. Jesus knew that they were always out there like Tigger, ready to pounce. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, knowing what was in their hearts, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? It says they were silent because they knew. They knew that there were exceptions in the law. If your child is sick or a child is sick, does a physician have the right to go and an obligation to go and attend to the child or to a sick woman or a woman in labor? Of course. There wouldn't have been a rabbi in that day who would have said, no, Let them to die. If a man fell down the stairs, a flight of stairs, on the Sabbath day, were you supposed to leave him there at the bottom of the flight of stairs to bleed out simply because it was the Sabbath? Everybody knew that was not the case. But at this point, they're not interested in what's right and what's wrong, what's acceptable and what's unacceptable. They're after one thing. What is that? To destroy Jesus. And so they were what? Silent. Silent silent. And so Jesus said to the man, come here. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. You know, it's not very often that we encounter Jesus angry, but he was angry. You may not think of Jesus as ever getting angry, but he did. And he was angry on this occasion. I love the way that Jesus heals this man. He's going to go on to heal him, as you can well imagine. He looked around them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. I want you to notice the way Jesus did this. He never touched the guy. So it's kind of hard to accuse him of doing any work on the Sabbath. (laughs) All he did was speak. There was no law against speaking on the Sabbath. Jesus simply spoke the word, stretch out your hand. And it says, as he stretched it out, his hand was restored. And look at the next verse, and the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. What's going on here? What is this all about? It's about one thing and one thing only. It is about jealousy. It is about jealousy of who Jesus was, what he'd come to do, and how he was doing it. He had all the authority they wanted. He seemed to have all the power that they wanted. He seemed to have the serenity that they wanted. And you know, when you're jealous of another person, I want you to just think for one minute of a person that you're really jealous of. And don't say, I'm not jealous of anybody. Oh, you are. We're all jealous of somebody, either because of the way they look or the way their life has turned out or whatever it is. One of the things that you'll notice when you're really jealous of another person is that the only thing you want to do is find fault. That's all you want to do. I want to find something that tears them down, that makes them less. As my wife likes to say to the children, you just want to blow out their candles so yours can burn brighter. And that's the way it was with Jesus. Their hardness of heart had come to the point where it was not enough simply to discredit him. They want to destroy him. And they will do everything in their power to do so. From this point forward, it is no longer a case of let's try to make Jesus look the fool. It's from this point forward, we've got to destroy this man and they will do everything in their power to do it and understand that's what darkness will always do will always attempt to overcome the light but this is a light that cannot be overcome next when we come back we're going to take a look at the role that the Sabbath plays in our life as Christians because It is a fourth commandment. How are we supposed to observe the Sabbath? The Sabbath is a Saturday. We don't worship on a Saturday. What is all that about? We're going to take a look at that, but I'm going to leave you with just this question. It was a question that the Pharisees wrestled with, but unfortunately they fell into that siege mentality when they were oppressed. In this kind of a secular culture where you are constantly being forced to conform, to give a little here, give a little there, let me ask you the question. What happens if you lose your saltiness? What happens if you are no longer shining your light in the world? The world is going to simply do what the world does, folks. It's going to go dark and it's going to die. And its only hope is you and me who reflect the light of the one who said, I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me shall never walk in darkness. So be salty and let your light shine before men. Let us pray. Father, there's much that we can learn from the scribes and the Pharisees. We can learn that we do have to take a stand, that faithfulness is costly, and that we cannot conform nor can we capitulate to the world around us. But at the same time, Lord, we must never fall into that trap of feeling put upon, of developing a hard heart, a siege mentality. Because when we do, we inevitably feel that we need to stand against the world and yet we're jealous of those who are in it. And the result is that we want to destroy the world that we have been sent to help preserve and by the grace of God and the preaching of the gospel save Your son loved the world, you loved the world, for God so loved the world. Grant us the grace to love the people of the world without loving the standards of the world. Grant us the grace to be salt and light in this broken and dying world. For Jesus' sake, amen.